It was really unbelievable. I wasn't really living. I was surviving. And you feel like you're living now? Yeah. I'm definitely living now. That's Cheryl Hill, a homeless mother with three children at the People's Emergency Center, a shelter here in West Philadelphia. She's been welcomed and supported by the case management staff there, the other families that live in the building, and even her non-homeless neighbors. And that love is propelling her to a new job and a new apartment for her and her children. Not every homeless family is quite so lucky. Many, with no option, are forced to pack up and move into a neighborhood protesting their very existence, based on fears that they'll bring drugs, crime, lower property values, and general chaos. And that's the lens through which we normally hear about homelessness and community. One in which communities and displaced homeless families are at odds. Insiders versus outsiders, the deserving versus the undeserving. Welcome to Bending the Arc, the new podcast from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. I'm your host, Dan Traglia. This show is an effort to dig into today's most pressing social welfare issues, ones in which the arc of the moral universe that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described is still finding its way toward justice. You'll hear from some of the people affected by those injustices and inequities, and those working tirelessly to help them. Policymakers, researchers, advocates, social workers, people on the front lines of a multi-front assault for fairness, compassion, and equality. Today we're digging into homelessness, a crisis affecting more than 1.5 million men, women, and children in the United States every year. Specifically, we're thinking about the impact of homelessness on the community and the need for community among people without homes. We'll look at what the research says, and we'll hear from three people with unique perspectives on how new homeless families fit into their communities and how those communities, in turn, impact them. Those are sounds from a 2016 protest in Massbeth, New York, a mostly white working class enclave in Queens, in response to the city's plan to develop a shelter for 30 homeless men in their neighborhood. It was not the first time Queens residents resisted what they considered a government intrusion on their rights by forcing a new group of people into their community. Not long before that, residents of Jamaica, Queens, protested the conversion of an old hotel into a new shelter for homeless families. In a video produced by the New York City Mayor's Office, here's how one African-American woman placed by the city into that new shelter felt about being there and the people protesting her and her infant son. At the end of the day, we're people who want our lives back. Basically, what's happening today is a protest to get the homeless people out of the hotels. We didn't ask to be here, we just asked for help, and this is where we got the help from. So let's talk about how homeless households end up in a particular shelter in a given neighborhood. More and more cities and counties operate what's called a coordinated entry system, with a single facility or a set of facilities operating as the access point to all the shelters in the area. People report to that central intake site, and the staff there, generally licensed social workers, will evaluate their needs and try to match them to the most appropriate shelter. If they have a substance abuse or mental health problem, for example, they'll be sent to a shelter with specialized staff. For families with school-aged children, the intake work will often try to place the family in a shelter in the child's school district. 
And these preferences or aptitude-based placements are subject to capacity. So if the intake staff determines that the most appropriate shelter or the only shelter with a bed is across town rather than in the school district, that's where they'll be sent. And they're sometimes sent to neighborhoods that don't want them there. We talked to Jason Miller, a lecturer at Penn School of Social Policy and Practice and a recognized expert in homelessness to understand the rationale a little bit better. He's been working in the fields for about 10 years with a particular eye to understanding how families he works with are affected by the people and environment that surround them. I asked him why people were so opposed to having homeless families, often with young children, moving in down the block. They assume there's going to be more crime. That drives down, you know, their, uh, their property value. Um, uh, there will be more people renting, and so that drives down property value. Um, and then just in general, I think people have a view that, that people are going to bring trouble with them. Um, and I'm not talking about crime. I'm just talking about, you know, uh, more domestic disputes, uh, more chaos from a place of just being unstable. To see if these fears have been realized, we first took a look at the research that has sought to measure the impacts of placing a shelter on a neighborhood's property values, crime, and general quality of life. And the body of research is actually pretty sparse. So in order to have more to work with, scholars generally include research on permanent supportive housing, which is subsidized housing that comes with case management and social services. There are reasons to be cautious in combining research on shelter and permanent supportive housing, or PSH as it's sometimes called. PSH is often reserved for the most vulnerable homeless populations, and they stay for long periods of time, as the name implies, while most households leave a shelter within about six months. The two concerns cited by Jason, that the placement of residential housing facilities will increase crime and decrease property values, are far and away the most common fears among neighborhoods of these facilities, and therefore the two most commonly discussed in the literature. The most recent study, although nearly 10 years old at this point, conducted by NYU's Furman Institute, found that the value of properties within 500 feet of a supportive housing facility actually went up compared to a control group of neighborhoods that did not receive subsidized housing. This supported findings from a 1999 study in Denver conducted by the Urban Institute. And that study, and a subsequent one by the same authors, did find slight evidence of increased crime in those areas. But those results were often mixed and certainly not conclusive. Quantitative rigorous research can only take you so far especially when it's both sparse and generally outdated. Luckily, we have an in-house expert who can provide some human context. Kate Lennon is a graduate from SP2's Master's in Social Work program and then worked for several years as a social worker in a pediatric oncology department of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. More pertinent to this conversation, she lived across the street from a shelter for mothers and their children run by the People's Emergency Center. There was never any loitering that I observed. There was never any drug dealing, really no drug activity of any sort. It wasn't even really the kind of neighborhood that you would walk around and like all of a sudden realize that you were smelling marijuana or anything like that. Um, no violence or kind of in, increase in um, activity that felt dangerous or disturbing to the peace of the neighborhood. None of that, no. In fact, the only time Kate and her husband ever called the police to report a neighborhood disturbance, it was actually the shelter residents who were being kept up by some neighborhood college kids. And in fact, the only time that we ever, like, called the police when we were living there for to make, like, a noise complaint because we're old people, um, it was 
for Drexel students who were like playing lacrosse in the street at like two o'clock in the morning and like bouncing their lacrosse ball off the side of people's emergency center. And we were like, hello, they're making too much noise. We have to go to work. Can you you drive down the street? Um, But there, you know, there was really nothing. We had no complaints, truly. And in fact, that was a case where it was these students, right. these lacrosse playing right. students, right. right, that were in fact probably probably bugging right. the families right. in this facility. by like bouncing a ball off of like the wall outside someone's apartment. Yeah. And beyond those easily quantifiable, measurable outcomes like crime rates and property values, there's even less evidence on the effect of a shelter on more subjective measures like quality of life. But what is out there suggests that once a shelter opens and the protests die down, the shelter is just there, a relatively benign building with new people on the block. You know, neighbors. And that's exactly what Kate expressed to me. If we were walking along 39th Street and like heading towards the L together, we would talk about the weather. Of course, then when I was pregnant, there was a lot more interaction, like the moms and I would talk, you know, maybe some of them were pregnant. And so we were kind of on like a similar time frame. And so it was really just like very normal neighborly stuff. Kate's experience is pretty reflective of the little bit that's been published on the topic. The only relevant academic work is from 1983, in which neighbors of four small group homes were surveyed on the impact of the buildings, which had faced powerful opposition when they opened. Respondents largely registered the properties and their residences inconsequential not really altering the neighborhood experience or adding distressful events. And reports abound with residents once firmly opposed to such development now largely indifferent. While there are some stories of nearby residents seeing an increase in public disturbances, like public urination, to be sure, those often pale in comparison to stories to the contrary. Even some of the most vocal protesters come back and report that a shelter has no impact. Sandy Lusk, a longtime resident who sued the city of New York to halt the placement of a shelter in her neighborhood, has called the impact, quote, very negligible, and reported that it hasn't hurt commerce, increased crime, or hindered property development. Getting back to Kate, one of the most surprising pieces of information I got from her was her neighbor's pride in having a community to welcome these young families that needed their help. You know, our other neighbors in that neighborhood, so people, you know, not necessarily associated with PDC, um, they were really actively very proud of their neighborhood and of their community in that it was this, like, safe, nice space for these young families, and they really valued the vibrancy that young families brought to the neighborhood, you know, having young children around and young mothers around who are supported and who feel supported and feel proud of where they're living. I mean, the value that that can add to your neighborhood is really immense. Kate has since moved to the suburbs in search of more space and a yard now that she has a young child. So I asked her if she'd be okay with the shelter moving into her new neighborhood, and she responded enthusiastically in part by contrasting her current sensibility with how she might have felt without her experience next to PEC. I mean, oh my gosh, there's a part of me that actually thinks that that would be, like, wonderful because my neighborhood is, like, so quiet. Um, It'd be nice to have, like, some more people 
around. But no, it wouldn't bother me at all. And it's interesting because I don't know that I would, <clears throat> you know, if I could be totally honest, I don't know that I would have felt that way if I had not had the experience of living so close to people's emergency center. I think I would have thought the things that many people do think, oh, it will be loud or there will be people loitering or um, maybe there will be drug use or, you know, I, in my like younger, more uninformed, more inexperienced ways, I think I may have been concerned. But now that I've like had the experience, like, I mean, it's so clearly not a concern. So while the limited evidence does not suggest that shelters turn neighborhoods from quaint Mayberries to Mad Max hellscapes, what cannot be overstated is the importance of the community for those people moving in that, that really need the help. Community is one of the most important things. That's Jason Miller again, the School of Social Policy and Practice lecturer you heard from a little earlier. For him, a supportive community is paramount to everyone's success, especially in difficult times. Much of this ethos comes from his upbringing in a small Mennonite community. And, and my religious upbringing is community is one of the most important things. Um, that's everything from we have this idea of mutual aid all the way to I, I was not Amish, but there were a lot of Amish people in the neighbor in the, and where I grew up. And so when a barn burned down, there was literally people there two minutes later to rebuild it. And so just know that's where I come from is ultimately the work that I do as a social worker, um, both from an academic side and also from the day-to-day -day, uh, practice side, is about building community with people. Research on the role of community support and social supports for people who are homeless certainly suggests that this is true for them as well. Let's start with where homeless families are coming from. They may be the victims of domestic violence, or maybe they've lost or worn out all of the family and friends who were able to help them before they became homeless. Perhaps they were staying on someone's couch or in a spare room, but eventually that arrangement broke and they're left with nowhere to turn to except a street or a shelter. So they're entering homelessness in a state of what's called disaffiliation, a sense of being removed from the community. And this sense of ostracism is reinforced by protests and signs like those you heard earlier and is in fact a barrier to participating in services and supports and forming trusting relationships that will lead to stability in the long term. This trauma even creates what's called toxic stress, characterized by increased heart rate, blood pressure, and the stress hormone cortisol. This negatively affects all who experience it and is especially pronounced in children who can suffer disruptions in brain development, increases in developmental delays, poor educational performance, and eventually chronic health conditions like diabetes or heart disease. Just think about that, the lasting effect of trauma. One 60-year-old is more likely to have diabetes than another one, just because they were homeless 55 years ago. So much of Jason's work, both as an academic and the executive director of a local shelter called Families Forward, is about building cohesion, community, and a sense of belonging. People have to realize and understand that there are other people both going what they're going through, but also there to support them. And lots and lots of people all of a sudden, um, not all of a sudden, they know this, um, but they don't always acknowledge it. So including homeless people in their community and creating a community among the people that are homeless is an important way of reducing stressors. Critical Time Intervention, a program model developed in the 1980s to connect the homeless to services and supports outside of shelter, 
has been recognized by the U.S. government and plenty of others as an evidence-based practice because those connections lead to greater housing stability and better health. One study from a group in Australia goes even farther, arguing that informal community resources were the primary mechanism by which social inclusion bolsters housing security. That study focused on homeless youth with mental illness, but there's certainly reason to argue, in the absence of evidence one way or the other, that that logic or theoretical framework holds true more broadly. Jason talked at length about his experiences validating this emphasis on community building and really lit up when describing one program he worked with in Sacramento, California. One of my favorite programs I've ever worked in was in California. I worked at a wraparound program at, a, at an organization called Stanford Home for Children. And um, they, were, they had a series of eight group homes. It was in Sacramento, California. And this was the early 2000s, 2003, 2004. And this was the most strength-based program I've ever seen in my life, ever participated in in my career. The reason was this, is that they were moving kids home from group homes. Kids, youth that had been for four, five, six years um, for a variety of reasons why they were in those group homes. Um, they weren't necessarily moving them back into the with their families, most likely that was, but they were moving them back in. And one of the things that they would do is they would say, it literally takes a year to make this happen. And so every single week, I had a caseload of two families, two. We would meet with those families and we would have these family meetings. At the beginning of the process, it was all professionals around the table. And one of the interesting things, the rules that you have within these family meetings is that you have to come out with an action plan every single time, but everybody has to agree on the action plan. And so what would happen with that is throughout the entire process, the, the youth and the family, whatever the uh, makeup was, their votes counted as two. And so within that process, you were always working on what they wanted to work on until they pretty much got it all done. Then the professionals like, finally, we get to work what we want to work on. <laughs> and then by the end, what you do after that year, and this had an 85% success rate of retaining the youth in the home for more than two years. Really cool. So what they would end up doing was by the end, they were starting to eliminate the professionals from that table. And they were starting, and you'd have to bring in other folks, church members, family members, folks from other places in their life. And I think one of the ways that that program was so successful was by the end, they had a visible and also a very structural community built around them. And that's why that 85% success rate was there. So we've heard from a neighbor of a homeless shelter. We've heard from a researcher, actually two of them at this point, so now let's hear from a homeless woman who's actually rebuilding her life thanks to the community around her. You heard Cheryl at the top of the episode. Now let's dive a little bit more into her incredible journey. From jail to engaged with three children to homeless and now on the brink of a job and on the path to her own apartment. Cheryl grew up in North Philadelphia and after falling in with what you'd probably consider the wrong crowd, spent time in jail from 06 to 2008. She served her time, she got out, and by 2015, she was really hitting her stride. And that's when tragedy struck. Listen to Cheryl talk about that experience in her own words. I moved in my new house July 2015. And 
it was like great. I had this nice three bedroom house, yard, everything, porch. January 12th, 2016, my oldest son was murdered. Sorry to hear that. Thank you. January 31st, my fiance passed away all 2016. So living in this house, you know, before Big Daddy died, like we had a system with the bills. And when he passed away, like everything was on me. I had this $825 rent. I had a gas bill, I had an electric bill, I had a water bill portion, I had a cell phone bill, three kids and a cat. So things got tough pretty quickly. And after falling behind on the rent and some disputes with her landlord, Cheryl and her children were evicted. So she and her family walked approximately eight miles from West Oak Lane to the Family Intake Center in Center City, Philadelphia. And from there, she was referred to the People's Emergency Center, located in Powelton Village, across the street from where Kate had lived, and about a mile down the road from the family's forward shelter run by Jason. And while you heard the protests in Queens, Cheryl had exactly the opposite reaction from both the staff managing her care and the people in her new neighborhood. These people here at PEC are so very, like, helpful. When I first got here, mind you, I was grieving two deaths. And it was like open arms from these people, a bunch of strangers that I didn't know. And they made me feel very, very welcome. I remember what we talked about before, that families that experience trauma tend to be disassociative, that they tend to kind of hole up as the way many people do when they experience some sort of traumatic event. And I think it's certainly safe to say that experiencing the death of a fiance and the death of a son is pretty traumatic. And so to have these open arms is, is, is so important. And Cheryl then goes on to describe uh, just how important that it was, not just for herself, but uh, for one of her sons in particular. When I came here with my three children, I wasn't the only one grieving. I wasn't the only one that, you know, had a loss. So I was dealing with three different personalities within my children. And their whole, the way they was grieving about it, I've tried grieving counseling for myself. It didn't work. Like my son, Karan, my son, Karan, I have a daughter named Helena and a son named Kadir. And Karan, like, is very, very angry. And PC has helped me to the point where <laughs> they accommodate Karan. Like, with his anger issues, when he has an episode, like any staff member from Jeanette, Raina, Miss Cassie, you know, they can pull Karan into the office and have him doing stuff that I couldn't get him to do, like drawing pictures. Okay. To kind of bring him back down. And like they keep him in there for the longest time. And I don't know, like this place here is just awesome. And the support doesn't end there. There are all kinds of groups, all kinds of counseling for Cheryl, her children, and families just like them to ease that transition into shelter and then create the ramp out of shelter. Just listen to Cheryl talk about her path forward. She's really excited about it. And as a direct result of that, Cheryl has opportunities and experiences that she could never have imagined even before she became homeless. So she now crochets and, and sells those things on, online. And in fact, the staff and the other homeless families and some of the people in the neighborhood are some of her best customers. 
And listen to Cheryl beam with pride when describing her encounter with two U.S. senators. With being here, I've done some stuff. I've um, talked with uh, two senators, uh, Senator Toomey and Senator Casey. I was with Mr. Joe. And just for context, Mr. Joe is Joe Willard, the vice president of policy at the People's Emergency Center. Staff came to me and wanted me to be the voice for okay. the people. So I agreed and like, it was awesome. And after my second meeting, I sent it to Toomey's office, they got the funding. Oh, nice. So it was like, I felt really, really good about it, and I let the people know that I'm the voice for all the homeless families in the city of Philadelphia, women and children. I know I'm proud of myself. You should I be. I came a long way. I really, really came a long way, and it's only with these people that they helped me. Did you ever think you would be talking to two senators Hell about... No. Just picture this. This was a woman who, not very long ago, lost everything. Her son, her fiancé her house, her community in West Oak Lane, her life. And now here she is so excited to represent homeless families to two United States senators. That doesn't happen by accident. And that positive support, fueling confidence through perks like meeting U.S. senators, is also changing her life in more concrete ways. For example, Cheryl's on the brink of getting a job that would begin at 6 a.m. every day. So it's only on the table because her neighbors and the shelter staff have offered to help her kids get to school. With the help of her case management staff, her criminal record has been expunged, which allows her to apply for a federally funded apartment from which she'd otherwise be banned. Her kids, having been welcomed by their schools, are thriving. Each of these pieces is so important to stability in the long term. Being in West Philly at this place is changing all of us, me and my children, for the better. So how do we create this symbiosis where the community feels comfortable and in fact proud having these families there and the families feel like they thrive because of the support they get from their neighbors? One thing I heard repeatedly from both Jason and Joe Willard when I spoke with him was the importance of outreach on the part of the shelter. That people might feel uncomfortable or a little odd having other people moving into their neighborhood people that might be in some ways different from them. And it's important for the shelters to reach out to the communities and say, hey, this is who we are. Come learn about us. Come hang out. Come meet our families. It's an opportunity to get to know each other on a human level. So one of the ways that we do this at Families Forward is we invite a lot of the community in as much as possible, the neighbors in as much as possible. doesn't matter if it's a church. doesn't matter if it's a... Um, uh, the neighborhood police, it doesn't matter if it's the garden that's behind us. We really want to help to be able to figure out um, that, it, A, it's a full acknowledgement that people are people, and, and, and B, that the neighborhood is saying, you're here, you're one of us. That's so what can the neighborhood and its residents do to make homeless families feel more comfortable and in doing so strengthen them and improve their stability both now and, and in the future? Well, it seems to come down to just the little things. Uh, the volunteering, sure, that helps and, and that's great. But it's just acknowledging, as Jason said, people is people. And so when you see someone on the street, say hi, 
talk about the weather, ask how they're doing. You know, just neighbors being neighbors. That's all for this episode of Bending the Arc, brought to you by the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. To learn more about our show, about homelessness and how you can help support homeless families in your neighborhood, go to our website, www.sp2, that's the number two, dot u-p-e-n-n dot e-d-u slash action sp2 slash bending the arc. Thanks to everyone that spoke with us. Joe Willard, who we didn't get to hear from today, along with Kate, Jason, and Cheryl. And thank you all for listening. This show is produced by myself, along with our three brilliant podcast fellows, Emily Berkowitz, Blanca Castro, and Alana Peck, all of whom you'll get to hear more from in future episodes. We'll be back with a new episode next month, with monthly episodes through the summer, and then more frequent releases beginning in September. We hope you'll keep tuning in.